Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. The 20th anniversary of 9-11 is here, marking 20 years on the parts of many investigators other than the U.S. government to get to the whole truth about what happened and who all the culprits are. My guest today is an investigative journalist who focused on what he describes as the biggest 9-11 crime scene that wasn't reduced to rubble. In his book, Welcome to Terrorland, Mohammed Atta and the 9-11 cover-up in Florida, Daniel Hopsicker reveals mind-boggling details about what went on in Florida, where 14 of the 19 hijackers were based. He talks about Mohammed Atta and what the FBI covered up about him, often by intimidating witnesses, some for years. He also exposes the connection between Florida drug trafficking and 9-11. It's no wonder the press has ignored this brave book, backed up by firsthand sources and released just three years after 9-11. But on this anniversary, says Hopsicker, at least one outlet besides the whistleblower newsroom has come calling. I got a call yesterday. My journalist wanted to do an interview on, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, same as you, from the National Enquirer. <laughs> of course. But don't count them out entirely. Well, no, 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 no. Let me, let me. I told this guy, he's, he used to be, he used to work at the Financial Times. Interesting. Yeah, and he was, he was a bright guy. So, so I, I interviewed with him. But as I was interviewing, I told him this anecdote that I'm telling you now. Um, I said, one of the things I was proudest of when I wrote Welcome to Terrorland, was tracking down Amanda Keller. Muhammad Atta had a girlfriend, um, stripper, pink-haired stripper at the time, 20-year-old pink-haired stripper, um, for six weeks. And after 9-11, both local papers reported on it, the Sarasota Herald Tribune and the Charlotte Sun. And then the Sarasota Herald Tribune, which is the heavy in this piece, took the reporter that was on the case, he'd already written two stories, and pulled them off. Now and let's 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 specify too that the Sarasota Tribune is owned by the New York Times. Is that correct? Was, uh, yeah, was was and, and was um, um, was still managed by the same people. Able to track her down. She was living outside of Cleveland. Her family was from there and and it, it was clear to me that she didn't want to be identified as the former girlfriend of a terrorist. Okay? Uh, that was just, you know, wasn't going to do, wasn't going to look good on her resume. And so I said to her, I said, you know, the New York, the, uh, the National Enquirer pays for stories like this. I said, and I'll contact him for you. Maybe, maybe we can get you five, you know, five grand. That's what I mentioned, five grand, because I had heard that. And, and I did contact him for her and, and, and um, they weren't interested. So I told this National Enquirer reporter, because when I, when I was telling them the story, yeah, we, that's the story. We love that kind of thing. So um, then I told them that the only newspaper that picked that story up was Der Bild, Germany. German. In, in, in fact, um, it's the biggest daily circulation newspaper in, in the world. They did a big two-page spread. They interviewed her? No, oh, oh, no, 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 no. They just picked up picked up um, what I'd written. They, they, oh, okay. They, they picked up uh, uh, the story off of Welcome to Terrorland. In fact, 
Um, the headline, again, I don't speak German, was, was accepted about Ada's, Ada's tiny schmackle. <laughs> God. That's, that's what she told me, right? I wasn't going to hold that back. What did he say when you told him the story? The uh, guy who called you recently from the uh, National Enquirer. He said it was absolutely the kind of story the National Enquirer does all the time, and I knew that. Okay, here's what it made me think, Christina, okay? When J.F. Kennedy Jr. launched his new magazine, George, yep. 20 years ago now, when, however long, um, in a press conference, a reporter asked him um, if he was planning on using his, his new magazine um, to investigate his father's assassination. And he said, no, he wasn't. He said, too much time had passed. He said, time is the great enemy of the truth. Interesting. That the National Enquirer is calling me 20 years late, right? I think that time may be the enemy in some ways, but not so much in other ways, because especially with this story, there's so many people from so many different quarters who have been gathering evidence and gathering evidence. And I'll tell you something. I, I can see, I can, when I, when I read the story, I thought, you know, I wonder if those family members who are involved in this gigantic lawsuit against uh, the Saudis have contacted Daniel Hopsicker. I met him, uh, 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 you know, up in, up in D.C. At, at one of the hearings. I met Sybil, Ed remember Sybil Edmonds? Oh, yeah, I know Sybil. We're up there. I had been a fan of hers. I mean, talk about a courageous journalist, right? I mean, she put it out there. She had she had the goods. Heroin. Now, just, you have to remind the audience who Sibel was. She was an FBI translator. That's right. And she was telling um, people that, that there was a heroin trafficking ring um, with FBI complicity. And, and, and that, that had a lot to do with why we didn't stop the attack. And that's what I saw here. Hey. Yep, that's exactly what you report. I tell your, your audience just one thing, and you can check it. It's a fact. The owner of the flight school, and the owner of the flight school that Muhammad Atta and Marwan al-Shahi began attending in June 2000, had his Learjet busted by the DEA on a runway of Orlando Executive Airport, July 22nd, 2000. Three weeks after Ada had arrived, and the DE agents found 43 pounds of heroin on board. Okay, let's 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 leave let's leave that as a hanging suspense because I really want to go through this thing with a fine tooth comb so that people see the amazing work that you have done and the amazing connections you have made. I just had to, listen, listen, can you imagine how I felt if I, if that could have, if that story could have broken before we went into Iraq, you know, I mean, too late for Afghanistan, but you know. Well, I, I, Afghanistan was so interesting, you know, when you were saying you also reported that bin Laden was the world's biggest heroin dealer. Yes. He controlled the heroin traffic and the heroin traffic went through Florida. And 
And it's, you know, again, history catches up because now the Taliban are going to be in in charge of the heroin heroin trade. Okay, but lots of money has been made in the heroin trade. By who, Daniel, while the United States was there? By us. Exactly. When I say us, that small fraction of us that are privileged enough to have been invited to join the trade, okay? It's a matter of elite deviance, okay? Um, You have to be, first of all, part of the elite, um, and then then you have to be uh, uh, deviant, okay? Um, And we can talk about those names because you connect some of those names in this book. The way your book is structured is is really great because you start with, you know, Atta and Marwan, who's his side right. (laughs) Available on Amazon. Don't worry, we'll 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 put a link there. But you 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 start. It's almost like a timeline. You you start with Atta arriving with Marwan, who at first seems like his buddy, but you know later on you reveal that he might actually be his bodyguard. And then you talk about them being there and what they did. And then you start talking about. And then you talk about what happened on nine eleven and what starts un- unraveling in terms of. You know, for example, who actually owned the flight schools, who actually started them and the whole historical context, which becomes absolutely shocking. So the first. You know who I got all that from? Okay, who I I got all that from from people that worked for Wally Hilliard, from Americans that were like outraged at what they had seen take place in southwest Florida aviation. Well, you have to say, you have to explain who Wally Hilliard is. Wally Hilliard owned um, Huffman Aviation. At Huffman Aviation, the impre- first of all, let's start here. There were, you, you wrote at the beginning of your book, 14 of the 19 hijackers in Florida is the story of the terrorist conspiracy, and it's about Saudis in Florida. You can call it the biggest crime scene that hasn't been reduced to rubble. Yeah, and that was true immediately. I mean, you know, the the World Trade Center fell down, okay? Um, And and unless you were a big fan of thermite, okay, there was nothing happening. But down here, where Ada had lived, not for the six months the FBI said, but until just two months before the attack. Well, actually, wasn't he down there like a, a week before the attack, some uh, a deli, uh, somebody, a, a, a woman who worked the deli at the Publix down there near Venice said that she'd seen Atta come in with two of his buddies to get subs. Exactly. So anyway, let's start with this, because I think this is the best point of departure. What would it take for a flight student, a foreign flight student, a Saudi flight student, for example, or a foreign flight student from the Middle East to get what he needs or she needs to go to a flight school in the United States? Well, here's what happened. I, um, um, 
1999, in, in Florida, Southwest Florida, there were maybe half a dozen Arabs came through to learn to fly. In 2000, there were hundreds, hundreds. And how did that happen? And you looked into that. How it, how it happened is the CIA let it happen or made it happen. I mean, nothing happens in Florida aviation that the CIA doesn't know about like five minutes before it happens, okay? I mean, that's the story. Well, I mean, what, what you... Yes, but what I, I want to give I want to give the, the details because you said that to get to a U.S. flight school, first, you, you have to get a visa and you have to be sponsored by a school. A school has to help you go through this process. Right. You have to have bank statements. OK, to show that you have the money to buy to cover the lessons and living expenses. You have to have a house mortgage to show that you're going to leave after you've had your lessons. OK. And by the way, what's interesting about this is the flight school has all that information. And in, and so somebody and you have you said that all these flight school visas that were given to these terrorists were provided under what you call Saudi cover. What is Saudi cover? First of all, there's some questions you're asking me that that no one's told me. All right. No one at the CIA has ever called me up and said, this is why we were, you know, we decided to train hundreds of Arabs to learn to fly in southwest Florida in the year 2000. I never heard that story. I still haven't heard that story. Michael Springman has talked about having to give uh, and this was way before 9-11, having to give visas to very questionable uh, characters and who turned out to be terrorists. But. In this case, you talk about Saudi cover, which is if you are connected to the Saudis, if you show that you are connected to Saudi aviation or to the Saudis, you escape scrutiny. They you thought, get a pass, which they, is what happened with all these guys, apparently. They thought Ada was a Saudi prince in Venice, Florida. Students at the flight school, some of them are who became famous um, from England. When I talked to them, they told me they thought Muhammad Ada was a Saudi prince. Flight school students, you know, at, at any flight school, but in Venice, they, they dress, you know, in, in racks and jeans and T-shirts, right? Yeah. Muhammad Ada was always dressed to the nines, okay? Like Italian shoes, press slacks. And the whole thing was such a joke. He was a pilot before he ever came here. He didn't need to come here to get a pilot. Yeah, he had like six pilot's licenses from different uh, different countries, Germany, France. Right. Mm -hmm. So what was the deal? And, and talk about Atta is very interesting because it's he was recruited, sure. it seems like back in was it 1992? Can you talk about that whole process of his recruitment by this group and talk about that group? You're going you're going a long ways back. He came to the United States from Germany and he was recruited via something called the Congress Bundestag program, which is overseen by the State Department and the German Ministry of Economic Cooperation. Right. Kissinger was big in that. Right. Well, uh, Kissinger, Rockefeller, Hillary Clinton. 
we paid for for um, um, for his school in West Germany. Right. I mean, I mean he was recruited by a German company in Egypt in 1992, right? And they, it's odd. His father was a commercial pilot. You reported, right? And then you said that that this German couple, he was an architectural student, right? Yeah. And and this couple brought him to their house in Germany, where he I, lived for six months. Well, it, it's a cultural exchange. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. I'm, 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 I'm saying that sarcastically, okay? I mean, um, yes, he was... Just the fact that he was in Germany as part of the... the that's the U.S. Congress and the German Bundestag, okay? I mean... That's who was paying for his schooling in Germany. Yeah, so the Congress, uh, the U.S. arm of this uh, uh, Congress Bundestag program is run by the Carl Duisberg Society. And the backers of that society, you wrote, were Kissinger, Rockefeller, Hillary Clinton, et cetera. And you, you basically said nobody realizes that there's a financial relationship between the terrorist ringleader and U.S. and German governments. And 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 what's interesting is that um, these terrorists coming through to these two specific airports in in uh, Florida were recruited by a guy in Germany. uh, He had a company called Aviation Aspirations or something. And he was connected to the two guys, Rudy Decker and what was the other guy's name? Uh, Aaron. Owned the school. Yeah. Ollie Hilliard. Not well. Hilliard owned the school. Decker's was the front man, and he was the front man after nine eleven because you know he testified he, before Congress. He did all the and and Decker's. If you look at his background, I mean the guy's a complete criminal. He was, he was a he, member of organized crime. In the Netherlands, and, and you're probably aware that he was eventually busted for for drug trafficking in Houston in 2011. I did not know that. Oh yeah, he went to prison. Where is he now? Probably only served a couple of years. Um, 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 he married a Cuban girl. I mean, Wally Hilliard had relationships in Cuba. Okay. Um, Wally Hilliard is a 70 year old. He was back then 70 years old. He, he claimed to be an ins- a retired insurance executive. And yet a year before 9-11, he buys this Huffman Aviation and gives it to this Dutch criminal, Rudy Deckers, to run. And then at the same time, this other Dutch guy, and I'm trying to remember his name right now. What, what's his name again? Um, uh, oh God, I can't remember his name. But this other Dutch guy buys another and aviation they, company at the same time. They claim they didn't know each other. And they did know each other because they and they both were being fed these terrorists through Germany, through this company, Aviation Aspirations, right? That's where I joined the story, okay? And, and it was simple. I was, I was waiting for my first book about Barry Seal to come out in New Orleans when 9-11 happened, okay? 
three days after 9-11, it came out, but not in a major way, in a kind of sub rosa way, sotto voce, that three of the four terrorists had learned to fly in Venice, Florida. And I went, my God, my parents retired in Venice, Florida in the early 80s. And I spent my business career out in Los Angeles. And I would fly down to Venice well, once every winter to see them. And, and, and if by the third night I was there, I felt like restless enough to like want to go out and have a beer. Right. There was nowhere to go and nothing to do. Right. So, and I find that, found out later after I got down here that Venice has the second oldest population in the entire United States, which makes sense because my parents retired here. Now, I never heard any talk of Muhammad Ali having a fetish about for blue-haired widows. So why did they come here? There's 220 flight schools in Florida alone. Wow. Now, all flight schools are not equal because you mentioned how the FBI has kept you know, never revealed who, what flight school Mohammed Ada went to first because it wasn't the Venice flight school. That's because right. there's, you know, there's a, and again, whatever flight school, the first flight school would have the paperwork on Ada. They would have the visa paperwork. And it turns out that um, he went to a flight school in Oklahoma, correct? He went to check it out. That's right. That's right. He went to Jones Aviation in Sarasota. He was also down at Char in Charlotte at the Charlotte County Airport. Yeah, but and before that, he stopped in Oklahoma to check out his first stop. Yeah. Right. Now, now, who has his visa information then? No idea. I mean, I mean, you know, th th this all was briefly at issue after 9/11. Um, but when you know the owner of the flight school he was going to um, had his Learjet bus with 43 pounds of heroin on board, you know, what do, you, what do, I, what do I care about Otter's visa? I don't. I mean, it's like as clear as the nose on my face and your face, okay, that, that somebody would, that was a dirty, dirty business going, someone was, ex was exchanging heroin for something else. Well... So, on, on the U.S. side, okay, I don't care. I don't care about the. I mean, the Saudis. I mean, you know, they had they had grievances with the U.S. Fine, I don't care. I care about the American traders that let it happen, even if they didn't know it was going to happen. Okay, I mean, have you ever seen the CIA say, "Boy, we made a mistake"? No, they never say it. Well, they, no, no. They never say it. Okay, this was a CIA operation being run in 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 Florida aviation. But okay? what exactly was the operation? Is it a drug running operation, along with a bring in some terrorist operation to do what? Wally Hilliard's Learjet that was busted had made thirty nine weekly flights. To Venezuela and back before it got busted. Right. Right. So it would seem it seems to me that that the drug drug trafficking had, had to be uh, uh, you know had to that's what is it you know somebody do you think do you think Atta and his cohorts there were running some of those flights? 
I don't have any personal knowledge that they were. And I never heard. I, I know who was. Who? Oh. All right, let me tell you a story about the guy who was co-pilot on all 39 flights. Michael Francis Brasserton. His name appears nowhere in the court proceedings. They didn't even mention. Um, they mentioned the pilot because because when the talk imagine you have a half a dozen DEA agents surrounding a plane with submachine guns. Okay? And the pilot is standing in the doorway of the plane on his cell phone. Now, this is the pilot caught with the uh, 40 pounds of heroin. Yeah. Okay. Diego Levine. And they order him to hang up the cell phone and, like, get on the ground. He, he doesn't even do it. He just continued. Oh, yeah, he just continued talking. So the co-pilot on all 39 flights, and this is an interesting story, is a man named Michael Francis Brassington. He became famous a couple years later. Michael Francis Brassington is a was a Guyanese pilot from the from the country of Guyana. Okay, and he's he's from um, one of the most prominent families in Guyana. Okay, yeah. Um, and the first thing I found out about about Michael Francis Brassington after 9/11, I mean, I knew the name. Okay, in 2004. Brassington's family in Guyana signed a billion-dollar deal with Oleg Deripaska, prominent Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska, Putin's go-to guy, Oleg Deripaska, the man who paid Paul Manafort $18 million, Oleg Deripaska. You discovered the CIA connection to the Huffman School, uh, the Huffman Aviation School that was attended by the terrorists, including Atta, um, through a very interesting thing that happened in Virginia. Do you remember that? What Lynch, happened? Lynchburg, Lynchburg, yeah. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. Um, again, I, I, was, I was the grateful recipient of, of tips. I'm the only one writing about Rudy Deckers and Wally Hilly, okay? Right. So a couple years after 9-11, um, I get a phone call from a guy who owns a very prosperous general aviation facility at the Lynchburg Airport, which is, of course, where, the, where Falwell's church was, right? And he had just lost the bid to become the FBO, the Fixed Base of Operations, at the Lynchburg Airport to a two-man company that was housed inside Huffman Aviation called Britannia Aviation that had a total of $75 in their bank account. No, $750, I think it was. $750, yeah. So the guy that owns the flight school calls me and he, what the hell? All right. So, um, what did that tell you? I mean, yeah, it was a government contract, right? It was a government contract. Yes. And uh, next thing you know, this is a contract that's being given to a bogus company at Huffman Airport. So at, no, at, at Lynchburg Airport. At, no. Well, Lynchburg Airport. 
Yeah, but but it's given to a company at Lynchburg Airport who's only by the way, the only because you have to have a certification to 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 run such a company. Their certification came out of Huffman Airport. Yeah, well, it was housed inside Huffman Aviation. Right. Aviation. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's why the guy that owned the company that should have got the contract at Lynchburg called me. Who are these guys? Right. Two outfit with 750 bucks in the bank. How did I lose this contract? Yeah. And also, the, another interesting thing that you mentioned was that Huffman Aviation, six months prior, you know, prior to uh, right before 9-11, it had n- not been paying its rent for like six months. Rudy Decker, first of all, Rudy Decker, you know, basically didn't have a pot to piss in most of the time. And all of a sudden he would just show up with, you know, barrels of cash. And right before 9-11, Boom, his, uh, he's made all the, paid up. It made the news in Venice, okay? The Venice gondolier ran a story with the headline, Huff, uh, a Huff Navy Asian pays its rent, all right, in June. <laughs> Swear to God, six months late, okay? Huffman Aviation pays its rent. Um, let me tell you, let me tell you, let me tell you what happened when I got here to Venice, okay? I came down here three months after 9-11, Okay. And in the 20, 30 years my parents were retired here, when I'd come see them, like maybe once a year, I had never seen a cop. I mean, it's such a quiet little town. I had never seen a cop. The first day I was here, three months after 9 11, I had pulled over twice. Wow. And the second time, and I'm, I'm glad because the second time I got pulled over, I, I, I said, You think it might be, idea, might be a good idea if I checked in with the chief? And, and, and the cops said, yeah, that'd be a good idea. And so I did. I'm down to Venice Police Department to introduce myself. Say, I'm, I'm here. I, and um, believe me, there was tons of tension in Venice, Florida, after 9-11. Okay, tons of tension. So I walk into this guy's office, and his hands are up like this. And he said, don't blame us for what happened. We had no control. We had nothing to do with anything that happened at the airport that was completely a federal operation. Whoa. Oh, yeah. And he told, well, you're just coming into this. And he told me, he said, Venice Airport has always been the kind of place where it's quiet, it's quiet, it's quiet. And then at three in the morning, a Black Hawk helicopter will fly in land and take off again 30 seconds later. So it's clandestine ops central, basically. So when I was done with the chief, I met the lieutenant who had been detailed to handle media inquiries because, you know, they were getting them. I mean, they had never gotten anything like that before. And this was a nice guy. And I said to him, I said, I just want to know one thing. Can you tell me if Rudy Deckers has any priors in Venice? Has Rudy Deckers been arrested criminally for anything here locally? And he 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 had the most pained expression on his face I've ever seen. I swear to God. And he looked at me and he said, I'd love to be able to tell you about Rudy Deckers' priors. He said, 
But the day after 9-11, the FBI came, came in, took all of our records, not copied them, took all of our records, he pointed outside the window and loaded them into two rider trucks right outside the window, drove them up to Sarasota Airport, where they drove directly down to a, C, uh, uh, a C-140, a C-120. 130. Yeah, that's right. Um, which then took off for Washington, D.C., which Jeb Bush aboard. This is a cop in Venice telling me this. This is the first time I would heard that, right? So a few years later, I finally, I, got, I met the guy that flew the plane. Longtime CIA asset, Russian. Um, um, well, he was the son of a Russian colonel in the KGB who was spying for us, got busted, and then got ransomed out of Russia in a, in a spy swap. So we came to America. Long story short, he flew the plane. You know, they were supposed to be taking the records up to, up to the FBI and Washington, D.C. They never got there. What did he say to you? Just that. Then, you know, the, the, the FBI never got the records that had been loaded onto the plane. So is, is he basically saying that Jeb Bush was involved in, in, in um, suppression of evidence or exfoliation of evidence? The sheriff of Charlotte County. Sheriff Bill Clements came out two days after 9-11 and said, oh, Otto was here. And he revealed something interesting that he had gotten from the local from the um, um, local uh, flight school in, in Charlotte County. Otto had an email list, you know, the, the way you might have an email list. And, you know, Otto, Otto had an email list. Right. Yeah. And on the on, on his email list were half a dozen U.S. defense contracts. People working at U.S. defense contractors. Wow. He came out with that. And that was the last thing he said. Okay. Well, what, what's interesting is you also mentioned that some of these uh, terrorists uh, actually had um, been trained or been at uh u.s uh, military facilities you talked about saeed uh, al go ahead not me not me this is another story okay okay a week after 9-11 the washington post and newsweek and i think the miami Herald, okay all reported that six of the 19 hijackers had attended training at secure facilities in the U.S. military while they were here. At Pensacola, right? Was that? Not. Ada had been at um, uh, Maxwell Air Force Base. Well, what's interesting, in your book, you report that the, the former wife of a CIA pilot <laughs> said uh, she had a girlfriend who recognized Ata at a, at a party at the officers club at yeah. Maxwell Air Force Base. And she said, she said she actually, this girlfriend was actually going around the party introducing Ata to everybody. He was, and, you, 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 if you met Ata 
you didn't forget him. All right. He had a thousand yard stare. I mean, there was no doubt. You know, I mean, I, I heard that from a, a, anyone here. Right. Um, so, you know how I met that gal? The, uh, um, Amanda Keller? His no, no, girlfriend? No, no. Um, um, in, in, um, oh, the CIA wife? Yes. Yes. Yeah. How'd you meet her? She, well, she got in touch with me because she was getting divorced from her husband who had been a CIA pilot at Tepper Aviation in um, Crestview, Florida, up in the Panhandle. Right. Who, who was running drugs. Oh, her husband was running drugs for the CIA? And, oh. and, and that's not why she got in touch with me. She got in touch with me because she was in divorce proceedings with him. And one day she came home and opened her mailbox and, and a rattlesnake leaped out at her. Oh, God. So, you know, this is how I heard things because, you know, people were angry. Yeah, sure. I get it. So the local newspapers reported out I had a girlfriend. They lived at the Sandpiper Apartments together for six weeks. Right. So I go. I went over there and started knocking on doors. They had reported the apartment number they were in. Next door to Ada and Amanda's apartment, I met Nancy Fredrickson. Isn't her name Stephanie? Stephanie Fredrickson? Stephanie Fredrickson. The most important thing Stephanie Fredrickson said, except the things she said about Ada, was that she got a visit once a week from the FBI after 9-11. You're not talking to anybody, are you? That's all they wanted to know. Oh, you, um, I, you know what I did? From your book, because the most striking aspect about all this is the FBI's role in shutting witnesses up and covering up information. So, you know, here are the things that you mentioned that I thought were very interesting. You said what was interesting is that they knew the identities of the hijackers less than 24 hours. In fact, that afternoon, they were already at Huffman Airport. If there were, the, one, of the, one of the- Huffman Aviation, I mean. Aviation said that F FBI agents were outside his house four hours after, after the attack in a white van, all right? Four hours. Yeah, so they, you know, so why could they not have stopped these people before it happened. The other thing you said, yes, was they intimidated and harassed many witnesses. They, I mean, Amanda was, uh, the girlfriend was for a very long time intimidated and harassed. I mean, she's still intimidated. And, um, you know, some of the neighbors over there at Sandpipers and also people who worked at the aviation schools, okay, the aviation executives, et cetera. Then, of course, they took uh, all that, all those files and put them on the C-130. That was, was that Secret Service or was that FBI? That was it. That was FBI. It took all that information, put it on the C-130 with uh, Bush. Okay. So, and then another very interesting thing they did. They lied about when Atta arrived in the U.S., mm -hmm. Right. They said it was June 2000, um, but it wasn't, right? He was here in 98. 
They lied about when Otto left Venice for good. They said he left in December 2000, a good at least nine months, because, again, the Delhi lady said he was there the week before 9-11. He lied about uh, knowing that uh, they lied about knowing that Atta was still in Venice in 2001. And the proof of that is a letter they submitted during a deportation hearing of a Tunisian flight student named Maren Badoui who had moved to Venice after, and, and he was a, a student at the same time that Atta and Marwan were students. And he, this guy did not arrive until 2001. So the FBI knew that Atta was, was still there in 2001 in Florida, in, near in Venice. The other thing that was shocking was the um, witness, I think it was Danielle Clark. Oh, yeah. The, uh, she was a French pilot and, and office manager at Ambassador Aviation in Naples who talked about Rudy Decker and the FBI. Do you remember that? She was funny. Danielle Clark. No, but what she said that I thought was interesting was she said she, after 9-11, she heard the FBI, an FBI agent, coaching Rudy Decker on what to say to the press. After 9-11, Rudy Decker was the face that they put out. Not only was he the face, but there was he lied about being close to Atta. He and Atta did know each other. They they took cabs together, I mean, according to this cab driver. They had dinner together um, um, several weeks before the attack. Yeah. So he knew him quite. He knew him quite well. And he was also invited to testify. Rudy Deckers was invited to testify before Congress. And, you know, he was he was talking about uh, Atta, you know, oh, he couldn't fly. I mean, they kept saying these guys could barely fly. They could barely fly. And. No, I mean, when I saw in your book, it said that Atta had several pilot's licenses from several countries. Why is it that they're trying to say that these guys were inept pilots? Now now I'm going to tell you two quick stories about the media's role in all of this. Okay. I'm from Newport Beach, California. I mean, I'm from Los Angeles. That's where I spend my, my business career. And the last 10 years in Newport Beach, where um, a man befriended me who had spent 40 years working at the CIA and the NSA. Right. And I was happy that he befriended me because, because you know, I, I, if I stepped too far out of line, I was looking for somebody to call me that, 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 that liked me. Okay. Right. <laughs> for real. So um, a few years after 9-11, I'm talking to him on the phone in Newport Beach, and I said, Dick, Dick Freeman is his name. You can look it up. He's dead now. Uh, uh, he designed satellites for, for Hughes. Um, I said, Dick, I'm a smart guy. I know that, but I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. How come it's so easy for me to see all this stuff, to figure it out? And you know what he said? He said, because they don't bother to hide it. Yeah, because nobody's going to do anything about it. Well, yeah, I mean, here I am, 
Okay, I, uh, uh, I put all this information out there in 2004 with the book. I mean, before that, I was writing on my website. What, what, what impact did I have, Christine? <laughs> wow. Nine years after 9-11, a man came down to Venice. He was doing what was generally known in the publishing business was going to be the last big book about 9-11. He was doing it for the 10th anniversary. His name was Anthony Summers. You may have heard of him. He's a, an English writer. He wrote a pretty decent book about the Kennedy assassination, um, like in 65, 66. He wrote um, celebrity bios of Frank Sinatra, blah, blah, blah. Just look him up. He got in touch with me, and, he, and he's doing this book, and he wants to come see me. He ended up spending a month with me, okay, a month, right? Imagine what that did to his travel budget, okay? Spent a month down here and didn't report a word of what I showed him and the people, I not a word. Why? You have, have to ask him. What, did, you, did you not ask him? You gave him a month of your time. When his book came out, I mentioned in a footnote, in an apologetic footnote, Oh, and this guy, Daniel Hopsicker, boy, he, you know, sorry, we didn't. I knew while he was here, I, I turned him on to Stephanie Fredrickson. And after, after the interview that he did with her, I asked him, I said, what did she tell you? He said, she told me the same thing she told you. Not a word. Not a word in his book. He was always looking for some CIA guy whose name I never got, who was giving him the shot. Uh, he was always checking, you know, I'm going to check this, you know. So here we are. I mean, it's 20 years afterwards, and I'm talking to you, and this is all brand new. Well, it won't be anymore. Well, let's hope not, Christina. I mean, so take, take I want, with it. <laughs> don't you worry. I'm gonna. So, um, I want to talk to you about the FBI's sins of omission because I made a list of those. So they always omitted in their public statements and in their description of Atta, who he was and where he resided in the United States, they always omitted any references to Venice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they hid Rudy Decker's relationship with Atta. They omitted reference to the first flight school that Atta went to, which, by the way, Norman, Oklahoma, that flight school was a magnet, apparently, for Bin Laden Associates. And um, like Musawi had been there. And by the way, oh, Musawi was also in Venice at one point. That's right. That's right. And and he uh, th was this was it at before or after 9-11 that he helped this this rich Saudi woman carry down this huge, heavy. Bill of gold. Yeah. Oh, the cab driver. Yeah. The cab driver reported that. The cab driver had been in the U.S. Navy in the 80s offshore Libya. Right. 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 Um, and he. he squired these guys around. He took Ada to Orlando uh, 
International Airport to pick up some big, rich Saudi guy. Let's get back to this list, because it's interesting. You were saying that these schools, like the two schools in Florida, they had special passes because, for example, um, when Masawi went from that Oklahoma school where he got in, no questions asked, nobody made phone calls. He went to a school in Minnesota and the next day the FBI was called. So there were schools that knew not to call the FBI to let these guys in, whatever. They were read on to the situation or how for whatever reason. And there were different FBI offices. Okay, this is not a monolithic thing. Okay, the FBI office in Sarasota. And I'm going to tell you a story about that in a minute. Is dirty as hell. Obviously, the FBI office in Minnesota wasn't because the day after Musawi got there, they turned him in, right? Right. Here's here's something the National Enquirer guy wanted to know about. That I wrote about a bunch. I don't know how, how much is in the book, but there's a guy in San Diego, um, Professor Abu Sattar Sheikh, who housed three of the pilot, three of the, three of the terrorists in his house. So good friend of mine died in Newport Beach and I flew out for the funeral, one of my best friends. And afterwards, I thought, I'll go down to San Diego for a day or two. And I did. And I discovered that this Professor Abbasata Sheikh wasn't a professor at all. That he had been an FBI informant. And this came out later. He was an FBI informant who, who apparently, according to him, failed to tell his uh, FBI handler that he had housed three, three of the terrorists. Does that make sense to you? No, it does not. It fits in with this whole pattern of um, right. of, of collusion with with these guys. I'm going to tell yeah. you, I, I, I tell you one more thing about this. Professor Abu Sattar Sheikh wasn't a professor. OK, he bought his um, online degree at there, there, there at one of a half a dozen phony universities online at the time, okay? Columbia University. And how I knew about that story. Wait a minute, Columbia University had a phony? Columbia, Columbia Pacific International. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, in 2006, April 10th, 2006, an American registered plane from St. Petersburg, Florida was busted in Mexico's Yucatan with 5.5 tons of cocaine on board. Well, I'm interested in drug trafficking. I, you know, I mean, it's an unintended special specialization. Um, so I, I looked up the, the, the company whose DC-9 had gotten busted, and they had used an address at the Venice airport. They had used an address at the Venice airport, which when I went down there in the middle of the night, because that's when I found out that they had used an address at the Venice airport. It was the middle of the night. I just got in my car and drove to the Venice airport, which is spooky in the middle of the night. And I found the address and that's where Huffman Aviation used to park their planes. And Ann Dankashogi was running that operation. Another thing that the FBI did that I thought was very interesting was, they tried 
to confuse Muhammad Atta with another Muhammad so that the stories that the witnesses were saying would be called into question. Okay. All right. So this is, this is now, this is now after the story, which would have made a difference one week after 9-11 and it's in the Washington Post and Newsweek in the Miami Herald that Anna had been at um, um, officers uh, tr uh, candidate school at Maxwell Air Force Base. So I thought, damn it, I'm going to find out if that's true. I called the Pentagon and eventually got to the woman um, who was in charge of answering press inquiries about that. And um, I said, um, well, she said first, what, what they did the next day, the Pentagon, is they put out a press release that said some of the names of these six supposed you know people who had been do not match up with the names that we have and the ages some of it which you know is the lack of specificity in that press release in a case where three thousand people lost their lives was just shocking and i said to her you know because what she said what was um Ada's, Bio details didn't match the Ada that had been at Maxwell Air Force Base. I said, well, well, what were those details? I'll check it out for you. You, you know, and what she said, when, when I had pestered her enough, um, and she was not a bad lady, but you know, she, would, she said, I am not at liberty to give you that information. You, you made an observation that I thought was very interesting that the FBI came and they were talking about a Mohammed. No last name, just Mohammed. And so this, this is the, the Mohammed that they were trying to sort of confuse and, some, and discredit the witnesses, eyewitnesses who were talking about, and Amanda, of course, like she hung out with Amanda, uh, Mohammed Atta and this and that. But oh no, the real was this, uh, the, the other, there was an, another Mohammed, but he had no last name. And you said, beware when the FBI comes out with somebody with the same name as a culprit or possible culprit and has no last name, because then, you know, they're just trying to throw, you know, they're trying to obfuscate things, you know, and confuse. I thought that was kind of interesting. Which is apparently what they did after the Kennedy assassination. Well, I mean, it, it seems like, a, yeah, it's it's a it's a tactic. It's a tactic to, you know, confuse people. And so now I'm just going to ask you this. You can say whatever you want. It just seems so interesting to me that this all happened. All these people were down there in Florida where Bush, you know, Jeb Bush was governor. OK, um, the bin Ladens are involved in this thing. Osama bin Laden's involved and they, they've done business with the bin Laden family, the Bushes, you know. And um, obviously, uh, the Saudis that were there were protected by the White House, the Bush White House, 
because uh, they were spirited away. And and basically the FAA said they had no record of it. But these two bodyguards who were there to chaperone these people actually came forward and and uh, talked about it. Manuel Perez, a retired FBI agent who'd been involved in counterterrorism and Dan Gross, retired Tampa cop. They chaperoned those Saudis out of Florida and they said, okay. yes, that flight existed. The flight went to Kentucky to pick up some other Saudi princes who were buying horses and then they were gone. So the Bush name keeps popping up in this thing. Of course, that was then, but this is now. They're still doing it. They're still doing it. You know, when Mina got too hot, they moved somewhere else. Now, Mina was a, a, a who was governor at me, you know, for well, they, they worked through Democrats. They, Bill Clinton was was Mina. Bill Clinton was uh, the governor of of uh, Arkansas when things were going down there. There is a reason, OK, that this is site specific, OK? At three airports, this is Southwest Florida. There's Venice, and then north of here, there's Sarasota, and north of Sarasota is St. Petersburg. At those three airports, General Claire Chenault trained the Flying Tigers in the late 30s and early 40s. General Claire Chenault became the first major American military drug trafficker. The Flying Tigers brought opium and later they became Air America and they brought more opium. And then and then his widow moves to Washington, D.C. after he dies, um, buys the two-story penthouse at the Watergate, is written up in all the Washington co columns as the Dragon Lady, and... helped the Nixon campaign, helped Nixon become president in 68 because President Johnson was desperate to cut a peace deal before he left office and she sabotaged it. She called her South Vietnamese uh, ambassador and, and all of her contacts and said, hold on, you'll get a better deal from Nixon. Wow. Heroin trafficking through Southwest Florida happened. Okay, Air America ran drugs. Now, why did how did Mina get chosen? Do you suppose what the CIA does is they go into a place that had a one-party state. Okay, um, in Mina it was Democrats. I mean, they had everything lined up there. They, you know, the the guy that ran the Arkansas uh, uh, the Little Rock newspaper that later became prominent in Washington D.C. should be run out of town on a rail. In Southwest Florida, it's Republican. Sarasota, in Sarasota, they've been doing drug trafficking and financial crime, white collar crime. And who's doing it? It's not the mob. It's transnational organized crime. Obama, in 2012, put out a white paper saying, the threat of transnational organized crime is like huge and blah, and, you know, threatens our national security. Well, hell, it did, okay? The forces of transnational organized crime are stronger 
than the Republic of the United States of America. They're stronger than any single na nation state. That's what, and it's been going on. It was going on in 2016. Okay, um, the Adnan Khashoggi has a CIA. Okay, what do you want if you're if you're the CIA and you want to run drugs and you do because it pays for all, all of your covert operations. You want what's called plausible deniability. And they farm it out. And then Khashoggi's a Saudi. If he gets caught running, and he was caught running drugs, the DIA, the Defense Intelligence <clears throat> Administration, um, leaked information in 1991 that, that next uh, the president of Colombia, he was the top drug trafficker in Colombia. And then Khashoggi. You want plausible deniability. If that anchor show he gets caught, if something happens to him, hey, you know, it wasn't us. It wasn't us. <laughs> they wanted to put him in charge of Iraq, didn't they? I mean, they wanted him to be in charge of Iraq. Um, and anchor show first American scandal was in 1966. The Lockheed was called the Lockheed Brimer scandal, and then he was <clears throat> he was key in Iran Contra. Yes. He uh, left a left a briefcase. Uh, on Richard Nixon's desk. So, <laughs> is it quite specific? I want to impress that on you. All right. Right. Mina Arkansas was run by the Democrats, run by Bill. Although he was working for for um, George Herbert Walker Bush. Oh, okay. <clears throat> he was working for George Herbert Walker Bush while he was overseeing the Mina stuff. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Okay. George Herbert Walker Bush um, authorized the assassination of Barry Seal in 1986. So all our presidents uh, have been drug dealers <laughs> but, but, or, or been paid for by drug money. Here it is in one line, all right? Yeah. In every country in this world in which there is a significant drug market, illicit, a market in illicit drugs, <clears throat> Who controls that market are the same people that control the country. How could it be any, anything other than that? Because it's the biggest slush fund in the world. <clears throat> if who controls the, um, the CIA made that calculation in the early 60s. And, wow. and, and, it, and it makes sense. But the thing of it is, is, is as long as drugs are, are illegal, that's where, that's where they make their money. Yes, of course. By the way, you mentioned that uh, the DEA was videotaping Venice Airport from an apartment right across the street from the airport, and that that video has never seen the light of day. I mean, is there any way to break this? When he was assassinated. What? I'm sorry. He was assassinated. On February 17, 1986, Barry Seal, the first major American drug trafficker. Right. When he was assassinated. Had in the trunk of his car <clears throat> videotape of Jeb Bush and George Bush loading drugs on the planes. He, and he thought that was going to protect him. It didn't protect him. They just took it. Yeah, I think when you have that kind of videotape, 
your only protection is to actually release it out to everybody and his brother at the same time before you get killed. <laughs> you know, uh, that it's was, not an insurance policy in the end. I don't think he threatened George George Herbert Walker Bush, the vice president. What happened? <clears throat> and and <clears throat> how I know about that is because Barry well Barry Seals attorney. Okay, told me. All right, he called George. He had a deal with the government that he was, do, you know, going to do time, do this, do this, and and walk away. The IRS came and they confiscated everything he had, everything in his home, and he went in, in into into his office there and with his lawyer present called George Herbert Walker Bush and threatened to to, to expose everything he knew about Iran Contra. And ten days later, he was dead. And not not just well, I'm sorry, we, we are talking about that, but it's well, it's a in a way, we're talking about that whole world. We're talking about and what happened in Florida happened while Jeb Bush was governor. And obviously, like the FAA, uh, when they were when Rudy Decker was being was involved in criminal activities like uh, selling planes that were were not illegally selling planes that were not airworthy. Uh, the FAA came down and basically said, you know, we're, we can't touch this guy or we won't touch this guy or back off from this guy or whatever they said. I mean, it was in your book. And I so my question, my, my question to you is um, to put it in in less graphic terms, are we urinating in the wind here to try and get accountability and put the truth out? Because it seems like uh, do, do we can't. We got you know what I, you know. Do you want to be known as somebody who knew stuff and didn't tell didn't tell your fellow citizens? No. No. And and what's the the biggest story? The biggest cover up in the world today. Is is the, what I just told you that 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 uh, you know the the U.S. government controls drug traffic. I mean, how do you hide a five hundred billion dollar a year industry from a government that can read the make of your golf ball from outer space? Right. You, you can't. And and yeah, but the question then comes. How do you hold because it's not the U.S. government we're talking about specific individuals who are snakeheads. We're talking about people who serve, you know, the handmaidens underneath. How do you get to those people? Here's how you get to. OK. When the DC nine was busted in the Yucatan in 2006 with 5.5 tons of cocaine on board. OK. The ownership of the plane was held by Skyway aircraft in St. Petersburg. Specifically, um, Frederick Geffen, who was a, an officer, all right? An officer and, of? Of, of, of Skyway, of, of the company that owned the plane, the American registered plane. Okay. And he said what every drug trafficker that's, that's connected and gets caught said, says today, he said, I saw, I had sold the plane. I sold the plane to this, this broker, this, this Mexican broker in Los Angeles, who then sold it, you know, I don't know where he sold it, who he sold it to, right? This is what he says, 
And the FBI, not the FBI, the FAA backs that play because they don't bust them, right? And the evidence that he had sold the plane was only faxed to the, F, to the FAA three days after the plane was busted. And when that happened, they said, well, it just got held up in the mail. Didn't wasn't mailed. It was faxed. It was, I mean, I've got the facts. Three days after the plane gets busted. Oh no, I don't know this anymore. It, it, it doesn't get any more obvious than that. Okay. Um, the people that control our, our, our government in some way control the, 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 you know, we hear a lot about Mexican drug lords and the poor people in Mexico. They, they have, you know, thousands of them die. Oh, I know. By the way, let me, I just want to be clear. The um, planes that were flying to Venezuela, all those flights were on Carib Air, right? Which is a CIA proprietary. No, it was. was okay. No, no, that was, they, they were all owned by Wally Hilliard. Okay, they were owned by Hilliard. I mean, and the, 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 the two Latins who chartered ostensibly the plane paid cash for each flight. Can you imagine a, 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 a charter aviation outfit in Florida taking cash from Latin nationals for charter flights? To South America? Yeah, yeah. If that's not a big red flag, I don't know what is. I, I don't know. So let me ask you then. I mean, you wrote this book. You ran into what you ran into. Put two and two together in the sense, if you were to, if somebody were to bring you into court and say, okay, you gathered all this evidence, what does this tell you about who is responsible for 9-11, would you just have to say, I don't know? Yes. You know, despite everything, I mean, despite all the spouting off I've done in the last hour, hour and a half we've been talking, I don't know. I don't know. Nobody, nobody, I know that that obviously they were, were, America had a deal or or certain Americans had a deal with Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan and um, heroin from Afghanistan was entering the U.S. for 39 weeks. We can prove it. Okay? It's provable. It's proven. All right? Um, So you're left with the question, did we make this happen? Yeah, did, did did we did we sponsor the 9-11 attack? I don't I can't believe that that we did that because I'm an American, all right? And I can't be I could be proven wrong, but I'm a I'm a patriotic American and before I would before I would believe that I would need to see proof. But well, I'm I, I don't know about that, but I do know that these characters, I mean, and we're talking about the Bushes, we're talking about Clinton. These people who are running major drug operations that that destroy social fabrics around the world are not nice people. And it's not inconceivable that they might be. And and I don't even know how patriotic they are, to be honest, because is it patriotic to allow so much 
criminality and to be involved in this criminality to occur. So I what you need to understand about that is this. All right. In 2010, remember the big recession, 2008, it was a a depression where I was. I don't know what it was like where you were. Um, The top UN official in charge of uh, their drugs are did an interview and said, thank God for drug money. He didn't say drug, he didn't say that, but he said, in 2008 and 2009, the only liquidity in the Western banking system came from drug money. The only liquidity, all right? You have to, under, you have to understand how big this is. Globally, according to the UN, people spend more money on drugs than they do on food. Wow. And, and, and as long as it's illegal, that's what... That's what that's what what, what what takes a pound of heroin in Colombia, you know, from being nine ninety five, okay, and 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 makes itself for like one hundred and twenty thousand in the U.S. is because it's illegal. Is there a connection between the drug dealing and nine eleven? Sure, sure. I mean, um, without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, there's a connection between. Um, Drug trafficking in almost any covert operation you can think of. I mean, you. the other thing that was interesting that you said that people don't really know is that Mohammed Atta himself was a coke kid, and he and his buddies would ro- walk around with these flight bags full of drugs. Yes. Went down to, oh, that was the first weekend with his new pink-haired stripper girlfriend. They went to Key West with his buddies. Yeah, and they, they, they got a couple rooms but one of them was strictly for their bags. And Amanda Keller said that right. she noticed that every time they went into that room uh, where only their bags were and they would come out, they would be completely stoned. What, so, spoiled, what spoiled their weekend was, um, according to Amanda, was when Ada saw a transvestite on the street. And, you know, uh, Amanda Keller being a stripper, I mean, she could have cared less. You know, it was like, I don't know, hi, how are you? And, and Muhammad just, just just wasn't down for that at all. <laughs> yeah, he couldn't take that. Well, that's interesting since he, you know, I mean, if he was such the Muslim, would he even be able to take Amanda Keller? I mean, who was a stripper and she, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I just, we're talking about, unimaginable evil here and i'm just trying to I'm, i've in all these interviews that i do about 9-11 i'm always trying to figure out how you how you get to the accountability piece on this thing you make you know if if drugs were legal they wouldn't be able to run the covert ops the way they do okay it's just that simple as long as drugs are illegal, okay, as long as drugs are illegal, a certain group of people. Yeah, but the problem is that same group of people control the judicial system, the uh, laws that are made, the, the, you know, I mean, so it's. If, if you've got, if you've got uh, more money than God, um, you, you can buy, I mean, buy anyone you need. 
And that's the amazing thing is I, I feel like there are legions of bought off people. Yes, in a word. I mean, and, and to be able to withstand, to, to say no to that is the court disaster. Oh, it's the court death, actually. <laughs> Look at the Republican election officials who have been threatened with death by, 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 by Trump guys. Okay? See, it's always, it, it's, I mean, how many, how many right-wing American presidents have been assassinated in your lifetime? No. You know, Reagan got shot, but but um, it's it's always the because they're they it's the right. I don't know about that because you know you've got the Clintons who are in lockstep with these people. Oh, well, but Clinton's in lockstep with the people that run the world. Well, I mean, and what are they? They're well, not. You can't you can't call those people good liberals. What about Obama? I mean, Obama, his his whole cabinet was determined by a uh, Citibank uh, executive. And of course, uh, when when the 2008 crash occurred, they got bailed out. Everybody was too big to jail. And, you know, it's so interesting how Obama leaves office. I always notice this about these presidents. They leave office and all of a sudden they become you know, multi hundred millionaires through speaking fees and books. And, and I'm like, I, I don't know. I just, it's, it's something smells. Eric Holder, the attorney general, oh. United, should be in prison. How many, how many bankers went to prison? You know, I mean, they destroyed our economy. Yeah. They pulled two, three trillion dollars right out of our, from under our feet and we did nothing. It was the largest concentration of, of uh, wealth up upwards uh, in the nation's history. I know. And, and what do we see? We see, you know, Obama, he's in his massive mansion, one of his massive mansions in uh, 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 Martha's Vineyard, you know, having a, I mean, people should see what's going on by now. And um, I, you know, really, I, I. There's an argument to be made, I think, um, that president being president of the United States is basically a middle management position. Yeah, in the in the criminal enterprise, that's what it's become. And I, I, you know, having said that, I, I'd rather have somebody like Obama running, like running the country, you know, also running the than 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 Trump. Because at least, at least, you know, at least there, there weren't so many, so many daily outrages. Well, I look, I, I don't want to compare the two, but I, I think that no matter what, if you if you achieve the presidential chair, it's like the United States has become a third world country and people are not waking up to that fact yet. But since I was reared in a third world country, I was reared under Papa Doc in Haiti. I see it very clearly. And if if you arrive at the presidential chair, you are beholden in a criminal way to major powers that be. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, Trump, even if you're billionaire Trump, it doesn't matter if you're Obama. It doesn't matter. You know, the Clintons, clearly. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's 
I don't even know how useful it is to say, well, you know, Obama is better than Trump because they're all in this system. It is irretrievably criminal. Exactly. Because 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 of the big lie, the biggest lie there is, which is there are no American drug lords. (laughs) That's the truth. They've been selling to the American people that there are no American drug lords for 50 years, all right? The DEA says, well, you know why there's no American drug lords? Because we've made it, we've made it too onerous, okay? We've got like criminal sanctions. We put them in Florence, Supermax for 40 years. Look at all the Mexican drug lords. They don't want to be extradited to the US because we're so hard on them. That's why there's no American drug lords. Well, you know, this is where the money goes. 70% of the proceeds of drug trafficking stays in the host country. Stays in the country where the drugs are sold, here. 30% goes back, okay? And, and we have by far the, the better, better, better deal because, because down in Mexico, they're killing people for that 30%. I just, you know, one of the things I remember is I... <sighs> This is something that to me is so disgusting. You know, besides sending those kids over to Vietnam for uh, on false pretenses, then, you know, you leave a bunch of them behind, you know, a bunch of POWs behind. And then you put in charge of looking for uh, left behind POWs, Richard Armitage, And that's his cover, it seems, and tell me if I'm wrong, for uh, being the money guy for the U.S. government's drug trade in uh, Southeast Asia. And you have Kunsa. I mean, you actually have video of Kunsa, you know, the big uh, heroin guy. They're talking about how he wants to change things. You know, and he's talking to he's talking about Armitage as the money guy and so on. He's talking about his relationship with you and, and that he's trying that he will end the drug trade in in Asia in, you know, his he'll end his drug trade if he if they allow him to legitimize and, you know, whatever. And I just. And I think about those kids who were just left behind to rot. If there was ever a national national referendum um, on on legalizing all drugs, you know who would be opposing it? You know where the money would be coming from? It'd be coming from the the, the drug traffickers themselves and defense contractors. Because, Because you have to control the drug trade to control the country's finances. We're spending $800 billion a year now. All right. What did we get for that in Afghanistan? Okay, eight hundred billion dollars. And, and there again, those kids who went back, who are have come back, are saying, "Why were we sent there?" I mean, my son was a Marine. He served in Afghanistan, and he knew what time it was when he was over there. But you know, my nephew was in Iraq. My sister's only boy, and for the for the two year a year and a half that he was there, 
um, I lived on pins and needles because I knew how my sister, I knew what, what it would do to my sister if he died. Yeah. And he was gung-ho. He was like a Marine. He went to the, the U.S. Naval Academy. And when he got out, he didn't want to be in the Navy. He wanted to be a Marine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate the work that you did here. I think it's extremely important work that needs to see the light of day, you know, in a bigger way. And I'm going to try and make that happen, Daniel. Thank you.